0: Australia broadcasting around the world. Around the world. You're listening to the Mitch Maroni Show. Here's your host, Mitch Maroni. Okay, welcome everybody. On today's podcast, we've got Dr. Michael Shaper. He's formerly the C. he's the chairman of the Black Economy Task Force and is heavily involved with the Chamber of Commerce. Michael is currently in isolation making it a great time for, for the podcast.
1: So, g'day, Michael. How are you? Thanks. Yeah. Uh, greetings from isolation to the rest of Australia.
0: <laughs> so, I suppose the first one, the elephant on the room. So, the isolation, Why, where have you been and what's happening?
1: Well, I'm here because I've just spent the last couple of months in Singapore looking at the state of business associations and organisations in Southeast Asia and some important lessons there for Australia. But, of course, to get back, one's got to spend a fortnight in isolation keep the boundaries safe for the country. Mm -hmm. So I I haven't got a hardship posting here, though, Mitch. I have got the Intercontinental in Sydney. I've got a tiny glimpse of the harbour. But on the flip side, of course, it is two weeks literally in a room with no human contact. So it's a bit of a challenge. And I think probably Netflix and your iPhone are your best friends in moments like this. Yep. Yep.
0: It'd be rough. I mean you'd think it'd be good for a couple of days, but I'd be going stir crazy. Cabin fever would be kicked in.
1: Oh yeah, look, when I get to the Jack Nicholson moment out of the shining, you know, I was starting to write red rum all over the walls. <laughs> we crossed a threshold. Yeah. Not the and uh hopefully won't be.
0: No, fair enough, fair enough. Now I just wanted to start, I suppose, with your time at the A triple C and just touch on that, see how it went there. How long Were you with
1: the HLC? Absolutely. Look, I was there for 10 years as the Deputy Chairman. Australia's Competition and Consumer Commission is an unusual creature by world standards because it is both a competition agency. It's meant to make sure that markets operate freely and fairly and it's got a stamp right across a whole variety of industries, everything from big picture ones like mergers and acquisitions right through to, for small businesses, especially issues like franchising, unfair advertising practices and the likes. Mm-hmm. It's also got a footprint in consumer area. And interestingly enough, small businesses are often regarded as consumers as well. It's not just you or I when we're operating as private individuals. And we're the only competition agency in the world that has a requirement that the Deputy Chairman be someone with knowledge of and experience in small business and for me, that comes from a long time ago, but principally, I'm sure your listeners will be really pleased to hear this one, comes from, I got it all got started, my time running the Business Enterprise Centre, the Small Business Advisory Centre for the Peel region itself. So, uh, yep. well, enjoyed, the, the Peel has, uh, has been, my, uh, been my starting point there. So, look, it, the ACCC is a very interesting beasts. Most people would have heard of it in, in some way or another, And along the way, there were all sorts of, I guess, sometimes truly shocking cases where you see people being hoodwinked and other times where you just kind of close your eyes and think, I really can't believe that someone would try and get away with those sort of things. So whether they be cartels, whether they be false advertising, whether they be building companies trying to put up fake websites for consumers to have a look at, whether they be business people getting up and sort of saying, wouldn't it be great if we had a cartel so we'd all know what the price was? We could all fix it. <laughs> so, been a very interesting learning experience right along the way there, right across the whole country. Yep,
0: yep. I actually remember it was a few years back now, I think it was in 2017, I heard you do a speech and you were talking about a company that had exploding wallets, like it would burst into flames. Which is a great idea, especially for safety and everything like that.
1: <laughs> uh, look, some of the safety areas you'd get into, because the ACCC is also the product safety regulator, those were uh, the flammable wallets. And as you said, basically, this idea that if you open them up, they're meant to actually sort of spontaneously flare up. But if you think about it behind it, you have to put something really highly flammable. I'm trying to remember, I think it might have been something like kerosene or something in there to help it ignite. And yep. of course, to make doesn't burn down the house. If memory serves me right, there's also an element of asbestos in the wallets just for good measure. <laughs> <to make sure. laughs> if you weren't going to get it, you're probably going to get mesothelioma. Yep, yep, yep. Tell you
0: what, every time I open my wallet, it's just moths that fly out, not, not flames. So
1: <laughs> well, We saw a lot of silly things. I mean, you, you run an accounting practice, Mitch. We saw a number of firms do things. For example, one cartel that actually employed an accountant specifically to keep tabs on the cartel and to bug work out for all the cartel members. And as your listeners will know, cartel activity is a really serious thing. It can attract jail time. It's about dividing up the market and and blocking out other people from competing fairly. These guys actually employed an accountant full-time whose job was to make sure that everyone in the cartel was paying their dues and was actually getting their share of the uh, the, the undeserved rewards for it. So it wouldn't be an area that I'd, I'd suggest you venture into. If you're no, no. But that but
0: that's very openly, like, in there. If you're employing somebody purely to make sure the cartel is working, that, that's very openly doing it.
1: Sometimes these things range from the very basic, such as a Western Australian egg firm, for example, that was selling free-range eggs, but uh, well, they weren't free-range. Yeah. That's a really basic one, right through to much more sophisticated ones as well. So all of those things sort of fall in between as well yeah yeah it was interesting
0: because on the same one with the fire wallet, <laughs> I do remember you were talking about businesses putting up reviews, pretending to be other people, and <laughs> it's struck me as a, a I should be surprised, but a thing that's very easy that a business could do that they shouldn't do, but from the consumer point of view, you don't look further into generally reviews on a business, so it would massively influence. What you're doing, and essentially they set themselves up for an unfair advantage, pretending to be somebody that they're not reviewing their own stuff essentially.
1: Well, I think you've nailed it. And one of the, the problems is that, of course, the world's changed, and technology is far more important as an information tool. You know, people's first response is to Google or something today. So what people put up online really does matter. Once upon a time, it was probably word of mouth or people in the newspaper, if we thought of that, or some something like that, or a recommendation from friends and family. But today we'll Google it. So when you see firms that go to the, the, the whole length of setting up fake websites, setting up fake reviews, you, that's not an accident, that's not a mistake, and that's not someone, for example, inadvertently like some small businesses sometimes break the law, not deliberately, but because they've just made an innocent mistake. That's completely the other end of the category. everything from... Sometimes very big firms, for example, one stage famously with Coles, we took them to court about their freshly baked bread, when in fact the bread had come from memory serves from Ireland. And interestingly enough, I'm not quite sure what came from Ireland it was half or par baked and then just finished off. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And that's misleading at two levels. First of all, it's just not true to say, look, it's freshly baked, as far yeah. as we were concerned. But also, it's terribly unfair to the little bakery that are often out the front of the same supermarkets that you find your coals in. And if you think about it, you actually do find them usually at the front because bread is one of the things people often don't buy at a major supermarket. Then we had um, cases like uh, the Nurofen painkilling tablets and they had different varieties for back pain, period pain, headaches, Mm -hmm. all the same month, just charged with different prices. So, yeah, why would you charge, (laughs) for example, watching female customers have to pay more for supposedly period pain when it's exactly the same, it's a bio equivalent, it's the same yeah. thing.
0: Same thing, it's purely a marketing cash grab. Like, there's yeah. no reason it would be different price.
1: Yeah. Now, well, you need know, a bit of a local element of this too. For example, in Western Australia, the ACCC has an office here in Perth, and that's a fairly active one. It looks at a whole variety of issues. Sometimes you do need the local touch. For example, in the case of beer, we had uh, Byron Bay Pale Lager, for example, which you think it was probably brewed in, I don't know. Probably Byron Bay. Yep, that um, my assumption. <laughs> yeah, you're <laughs> wrong. But it was brewed more than 500 kilometres away and it was by a major chain. So those are the sort of ones where people think I'm buying a small boutique brewery and you're not. You also have investigators who kind of go, well, I've just found this beer and it's called Fremantle. It's Fremantle Lager, and it's being brewed in this place called Palmara. Now, that's misleading and it's like, Actually, it's literally across the road from the Fremantle City Council boundary. So, you know, maybe we won't worry too much about that yeah. one as well. So, yeah. it's an, an element of common sense as well. The overarching thing is here is, you know, it's the great Australian public and uh, honest, hard-working businesses being cheated out by what people say and do.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that comes to the heart of, of what the issue is, like with all of the ones we've just mentioned. It's the consumer, the general public being cheated or conned into purchasing or not purchasing based on a third party, you know. Absolutely. If, yeah, if it just happens to be across the road, yeah, I suppose technically it's out of the area, but, you know, it's not not a huge issue. But if, I don't know, say it was Carlton or something in Melbourne and they're shipping it over to Fremantle and saying it's pretty Fremantle, then that, that's a bit different.
1: Another case in point, as Deputy Chairman, meant that occasionally I was Acting Chairman and I had the privilege of being Acting Chairman both when the carbon tax came in mm. and then the carbon tax came out. The carbon tax created a lot of work for everyone in government on its way in and then on its way back out again. Yep. When, it, when it came back in, which was about 2012, we were sitting there thinking about, you know, how do we make sure the, the message is very important there? Yeah. There's a bit of a parallel to the introduction of the GST, which, which, of course, 20 years ago now, but making sure that when prices move because of a new tax system that people are aware of why it's moving so they're not misled, so they're not mm. effectively cheated out of why, why am I paying more now? It's not way to move your prices, but you've got to make sure you're yeah. honest about why you're moving them. So in that case, the West Australian actually broke this story where, Brumbies had, uh, a manager of a Brumby store had actually sort of sent a note out to franchisees sort of saying, look, we're going to move our prices, but the carbon tax is coming in, so why don't we just let them take the blame for it anyway?
0: Yeah, um, I do remember that. That was,
1: yeah. You're <laughs> <laughs> very careful what you put down in an email and send out to people. Australia to straight pick that one up, and then it quickly got a run in the eastern states media as well. And but that was a really great case early up to sort of say this is, this is a sort of misleading sort of stuff. Mm. So that one's a more of a, I think, an enthusiastic mistake. It's a long time in the past now. So you see all sorts of things in the commission. Looked after franchising, which is another area that, of course, Mitch, no doubt you and your practice have, have dealt with and certainly amongst your client base, really popular, but franchising has got its own set of rules and issues as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's, look, it can work but it really depends on the franchise, franchisee sort of dynamics. And even I actually had one, won't mention what franchise it was, but their entire business model from the franchisor that they were selling doesn't work. So it's not a profitable business model. We did a little bit of digging because the client was a franchisee that came on board and was struggling and stuff. We did a little bit of digging and the franchisor was technically he was employed as not owning it but he had been investigated by the ACCC and fines had been laid against him and he'd found guilty and he was banned from being a company director and you know all this sort of stuff he then subsequently and it's just a problem with the, the law of it it was set up the company under his brother's name his brother was the director and everything but he still did everything then his brother got pinged and now I think it was under his wife's name, the new one. Whatever it was, it was, it was a shit show, <laughs> in lack of better terms. And I mean, one of the big problems was that it didn't work. Like from an actual business model that they were selling, it didn't work. But then there is other franchises, McDonald's, for example, whatever, that do work. And they've been around and established for a long enough time to prove that it does work. So... Yeah, there is some franchises that are good. There's some that are bad. I suppose it's like all business. It's interesting because there can often be quite a power imbalance between the franchisor and the franchisee. And I think that's important where like, you guys sort of come in and stuff.
1: You're really right about that issue about power imbalance because once you sign up to a franchise agreement, it is like a marriage in a sense. You need both parties. The franchisor needs franchisees on the ground, selling products, getting customers in, et cetera, to make them work if it's a legitimate franchise operation. And the franchisee, of course, is in some respects almost entirely dependent on the business model that the franchisor has and how well that is managed at the big picture as well as what they do at the ground level as well. Now, you can't obviously tell people what businesses you can and can't go into. I mean, it's a pretty fundamental right in this country that we're free to choose, we're free to try our hand, free to fail, we're free to succeed. Every year in Australia, more than 300,000 new businesses start up, about 280,000 other businesses close, and that's being part of an entrepreneurial economy, and you've got to kind of welcome that. But one of the things you do need to do is make sure that right at the outset, right up front, people have access to the information that they need to make a decision, that they get honest and accurate information. And I wouldn't want to be in a position where you'd have government agencies making a decision about, what is and or isn't a legitimate business idea? For example, if we're in 1955 talking at McDonald's and someone has all said, I've got an idea for mass producing identical hamburgers right around the planet, mm-hmm. people would have gone, What a crazy idea, because yeah. people like a local burger shop, and, but yeah. that'll never work. And no, you can't run that as a franchise because it clearly does work. Yeah. Encourage that innovation, but at the same time, there is a role to make sure, especially. For those really mum and dad operations the small businesses and most franchisees are small businesses. That someone is at least trying to keep an eye to make sure that the information that's going out to them is honest and accurate and where it's not, that people get picked up for it.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense and I completely agree. Now, I suppose it's interesting the A triple C, but moving into the black economy task force, if you yes. can talk about that, that's I don't know what deals. you can talk yeah. about with that, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so, the black economy refers to it's also going by a variety of other names as well, Mitch. They sometimes the shadow economy, the grey economy, the informal sector as well. In Australia, that can be something as simple as a trader coming around and saying, I've i do this job for you, I'll do cash, you know, you we'll know, cut off the price for you if we just do cash. And you can see that there's, a, there's some of that that goes on, yeah. Uh, but then again, the, the black economy can also refer to much, much more serious activities, and that includes everything from uh, a really interesting one is illicit tobacco. That is a huge sector. The amount of illegally obtained tobacco that is uh, shipped into this country is a real problem, actually. Really? And it's one that, yes, it's a really interesting one, one that Border Force spend a lot of time working on, that independent grocers, for example, the small-scale standalone grocery stores are particularly affected by this as well because it basically undercuts the sales they make on legitimate Hmm. tobacco as well. That is one that you think of. There are other forms of black economy can involve people being paid cash in hand rather than through the wages and salary system. And also perhaps it can be even far more nefarious sort of stuff like a bit of human trafficking and and the like as well. So it does range from some of them, let's face it, you've got to put the innocuous category. Really, if you're paying your trade a couple of bucks less, that is not as serious as someone who is moving drugs. Illegally trafficked wildlife is another one in Australia as well. There's some quite horrifying consequences. Human trafficking, all of those sort of areas as well. They're the ones that obviously are the, the ones that have some real implications. So as well as being the fact that in some cases it's also a great conduit for organised crime as well. Organised crime does exist in this country. So a couple of years ago, a initial inquiry by a committee set up by the federal government identified the black economy as being an issue and also made a number of suggestions as to changes for them. Some of those are already in place, um, Mitch, you, may have noticed, for example, through your practice that there are now some increased reporting requirements for some particular industries. Cleaning industries are one of them and the such like. That's because the research seems to suggest that there are a couple of industries there where people are either being paid cash in hand or off the books in one form or another. There's also um, a more coordinated effort about illicit tobacco because it was one of those areas that was falling into the cracks. Is it the police? Is it... Force. there are a couple of other agencies as well, which one of these is responsible mm-hmm. for it. There's also been talk about whether or not we should be encouraging more people to move to cashless payments because that makes it harder. Yes. It doesn't remove the black economy because black economy will continue to exist and cryptocurrencies, for example, a great example of how the technology affects the black economy, but it's a never-ending race. So, for example, on one hand, technology enables cashless transactions to be done a lot more easily, which is, a lot of people say, that's great. Well, some business operators say, that's I don't like to handle cash. If it's cashless, I don't have to worry about money being stolen. I don't have to worry about my tax records. It all just, hmm. in a good sense, will flow seamlessly through. That's, yep. <laughs> that yep. was beautiful on that one, yeah. But at the same time, technology also allows things like cryptocurrencies to exist that can also be traded Across borders without any real trace as well. Yeah.
0: Yep. With on the cryptos, I suppose from your experience with the organized crime, that would be quite a big way for them to move money around and stuff at the moment. There
1: are all sorts of different tools that people use, and it is a perpetual game of almost playing in the dark as soon as regulators, government, police identify something. Then, of course, you think about it, black economy operators are sort of like. Economy entrepreneurs as well. They'll always try the next thing is we will find somewhere else to do it. In many ways, a lot of these criminals are just on the other side of the yeah. legal ledger. Yeah. Yeah. So you always have to think and you'll never completely eradicate it, but you do need to get down to the level that you can. So sometimes you've even got to put yourself in the shoes of, someone. if we make this change, what will people do in response to it in order to, for example, if we crack down on cash payments, how will organised crime? How will illicit uh, traders? Therefore, try and find a way around. You need to try and think like they do sometimes. Yeah, catch <laughs> think like a poacher.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But that makes sense. I am quite surprised about the tobacco though. I didn't realise that. I mean, I would have thought you know your standard illicit drugs that everybody knows you know meth, weed, heroin, etc. But yeah, tobacco. That's interesting.
1: It's an interesting group of organisations that have come together for this. So, the Black Economy Advisory Board, which, as you mentioned, I chair for Federal Treasury, is a mix. There are about three or four government agencies at the table, or the force. So, they do not only immigration, but they do literally customs as part of that. So, they're right at the front line. It is the Australian Taxation Office because that is obviously another key mechanism. Is Federal Treasury. Then there are from the private sector. Bodies as diverse as Council of Small Business of Australia, COSBOA. PwC, there is a uh, the recruitment and consulting services area because a lot of labour hire practices in recent years have been subject of critical scrutiny as to whether or not uh, people are being paid properly as well. So-called wages theft or wages cheating, not being paid full amount for it. Interestingly enough, of course, we'll probably remember couple of cases about big franchise chains doing that as well. So yeah our second previous topic. The horticulture industry, because they get a lot of seasonal workers, I mm-hmm. mean, and sometimes those people do have tax file numbers, sometimes they don't. Yeah. So a bit of a diverse mix yeah. there. Restaurant and Catering Association is another one because it can be a strong temptation in some of those sectors to sort of say, look, I'll just pay you cash out of the till and leave it.
0: Yeah, Ah. Yeah. or even things like detour, we'll we'll get back. But I have no idea whether they've been investigated at all and they're cleared, they could be cleared. That's my disclaimer on that one. But the car washers, you know, the ones at shopping centres and all of that, I do kind of do my maths in my head and go, okay, well, you know, you're cleaning my car for $60. There's three of you on there for an hour. How are you making money? You know on rent and everything else as well, so that'll be interesting to see what happens with that. And you know, it could be legit, but I don't know. look, I think it speaks to a bigger issue
1: that we is really important about the black economy, and that is that a, what are the values we as a society add to being involved in paying tax? There's a fair bit, for example, so. Some cultures, I think the Italians famously have a saying that says, like, "Only fools pay tax," which kind of surprises me. <laughs> a pretty clear sense of perhaps how people treat the system over there. Whereas, oh, what's the joke? The Italians spend their time trying to work out how to avoid tax, and the Germans spend their time working out how to pay it. <laughs> you know, so it just goes to show you—you know—very different perspectives. So there is a cultural element there about encouraging people to do the right thing, because ultimately those. Moneys are the things that pay for schools and hospitals, healthcare, which is obviously a really important one at the moment, wildlife conservation, education, almost everything that we as a civilised country want to see ourselves and our children have access to. But at the same time, we also know that if governments come down too heavy and have too many rules, then it makes perfect sense for people to try and move into the black economy. If you have tax rates that are so high, then people... Go, it's just not worth my while, I might as well be in the black economy and if I get caught, eh, I'll still be in my advantage. We don't want to be at that point and we don't want to make rules so hard and we also don't want to create such a, an atmosphere where people feel that the government is there to give you a hard time and, and the government will always treat you from the beginning as a criminal unless you can prove it not otherwise. The Tax Commissioner himself has said on a number of occasions, most people, the vast number, five Percent more do the right thing. And we've got to be really careful about not using the gold sledgehammer to crack a tiny peanut when, in fact, a small number of people may be breaking the law. Sure, we've got to go after them, but we don't need to make the other 95% pay the price for that as
0: well. Yeah, and sometimes, not that it makes it right, like ignorance (laughs) of the law is no excuse, but some claims and stuff could just purely be ignorance and they thought they could and they didn't. And it could just be a small one. So it really varies, like from a tax point of view, you know, claiming laundry for the 150 whereas they might have only been entitled to half of that, for example, versus somebody ripping off the government a million dollars a tax. So it is important to remember that it isn't everybody, like you said.
1: you are also going to use it proportionately. I mean, in reality, of course, there are all those, those small little claims. And again, that yeah. question, how much time and effort Would you spend to track that down as opposed to, A, what you'll get back and, B, just how, you know, you're missing the big picture there. But sometimes also your your other point there, Mitch, about inadvertent mistakes, and that happens and it happens all the time. And part of being a good regulator, part of the skill of being competent in policing laws is also to exercise a bit of judgment Hmm. as well. You know, sometimes... You can turn up to, and I'm sure you must get this as well yourself because accountants are inevitably the first point of call for almost all business operators in terms of all these thorny issues. very few people go, by the way, very few people go to government agencies for information, but 96% of them go to their accountant for their advice. (laughs) Yeah. You know, professional competence. But I go about my HR, where will I go about this, where will I go there?
0: About everything, no matter if it's like we specialise in or not, they pick up that phone.
1: When I was at the ACCC, for example, wearing another regulatory example, you know, you'd have business operators come up and they would tell you this and you just look at them and you go, oh, my friend, look, you know, this conversation didn't happen, but you know what, breaking the law, I know you don't realise it and I can tell talking to you that, you know, this. we're not playing for sheep station C, but, mate, just a word of the wise, stop it and don't, you know, and <laughs> do not do this. And it's all that you need because sometimes people make that mistake innocently.
0: Yeah, exactly. And not saying that we've done this or ever done this before, but sometimes they do tell you stuff and you go, Look, I would I highly recommend stopping doing that. Pass the past move on, don't do it anymore, sort of thing. Obviously depending on the size, but not saying we would ever do anything like that where they would be doing illegal activities and we wouldn't do it.
1: But It's actually a it's a bit of an issue that we all get in a professional capacity and it's a bit like being in the confessional. There are times where you just say like, that ain't going to be, you really shouldn't be doing that. It's yeah. a little bit different when they turn up and say, I've buried three people in my backyard. And- exactly. And
0: That's a different
1: sort of scenario. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, like, obviously, if the judgment call on that, but yeah, if it's a small thing and you know, stop doing it, this is how you're supposed to do it, move forward. But yeah, if, if you're committing murder, probably need the cops involved. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with the black economy, obviously you guys review where the money's going that's outside of the system through the various side of things. What would be, I suppose, an interesting thing that you guys discovered that you weren't expecting?
1: Well, the, One of the most interesting ones, of course, is you can't actually tell how big the black economy is. Yeah. Because no one goes in a form to say this is how much I haven't given to the tax office, for yeah, example.
0: Yeah, true, true.
1: Yep. It's a really interesting one about how big is it. One of the things that I was doing in Singapore was a look at the black economy in Southeast Asia as well. And some of the issues are a bit different. For example, you know, they have gem smuggling and they have people moving across borders and they have illegal timber trafficking and, and so forth and bags of money being transported in overseas flights and, and a lot more corruption in a lot of countries. Mm. Some things that are perennial. The first one is how big is the, the black economy? We know generally that well run countries, ones with good, clear, transparent rules, a public trust in government, open and accountable government, functioning democracies, rich countries tend to have lower levels. So, for example, Austria, for example, is one of the countries that gets one of the lowest levels of perceived black economy activity, whereas other nations such as Zimbabwe and many other African countries are at the the other end of the scale. But how do you measure it? Well, you can not really ask the people who are doing it because they're not likely to volunteer to be part of a survey. Uh, So there are all sorts of highly sophisticated ways, you know, everything from, for example, calculating how much tax you think should be collected versus how much actually is and then going, well, the difference must be the size of the black economy. But, there's a whole bunch of assumptions there, but there's some really interesting ones that aren't. For example, one is you know how much illicit and you may have heard this versions of this floating around before. Floating is the word here. Illicit drug use is being shown up in wastewater that comes out. For example, wastewater testing that shows levels of methamphetamines, for example, that are being flushed down the toilet or down sink wells. That is an indicator of it. Another one is electricity. Yep electricity yep. is being used in its city. This one often happens in the third world because you look at a place and you'll go, my God, the place is lit up like a Christmas tree, but they're officially, according to all the data, there's hardly any economic activity going on here. There's very few businesses. There's very few little tax being paid. So clearly there's a big mismatch between yep. the two. Sometimes you have to actually be kind of quite innovative about what you do. Australians are one of those countries, Australians are generally fairly adept adopters of new technology. And the same applies when we come to cashless transactions, that we are a country that has moved quite quickly yeah. to being a point of cash is no longer the single preferred option. Online transactions and cashless transactions tend to be far more, and they're actually more prevalent now than cash transactions. Yeah. Well, and it's not because they've been forced to do so, and you shouldn't force people to do that. It's simply become a consumer preference. There's a whole generation of people, for example, that are happy to travel with a plastic card and they don't want to carry cash.
0: Yeah. To be honest, that's pretty much me. I've never got cash on me or have five bucks or something, and it's always just on the card. Yeah, And even from yeah, and that- our accountancy firm, I reckon ballpark 95% of our client, like revenue comes electronically. EFT, FPOS, whatever. We get very little cash, which is handy for me because it means I don't have to go to the bank. It's just really interesting because like you said, it wasn't a massive time ago that people were very cash dominant. It's going more and more away from them. Culture
1: makes a real big difference here though. I've just come back as we mentioned, from a couple of months living in Singapore. And Singapore is a pretty high-tech, wide country. It's a country the size of roughly suburban Melbourne, population physically. And yet cash is still tremendously important there. It's a really interesting one. On the one hand, they've got very high-tech in so many areas, but you can't move for finding ATMs, you can't move for people dealing with cash. And the number of cashless transactions, Mm. very limited, Good market where I used to go and shop, the queue for card payments only on the, you know, the devices you use, the machines just to pay your own way rather than go across the teller, the, mm. the, the automated tellers. The card ones weren't used that heavily. People were all queuing because they wanted to use the one where you put your dollar notes in and you get back. So yeah. they have what, a, why do you think that is?
0: Just a cultural
1: thing or just... I'm not quite sure. That is the short answer. It's a cultural thing. What lies behind it is a little bit different. So Americans, for example, still famously very big on cash and checkbooks, for example. It feels like talking about something that's extinct, a checkbook. (laughs) Whereas the Swedes and Scandinavians are right up there as some of the world leaders in terms of non-cash payments these days. They very rarely use cash at all. In fact it's sometimes said that Sweden is as close to a cashless economy as you can find in the world. Okay.
0: That's interesting. On that, with the the change to the amount of cash that you can purchase something with, fairly certain it went through. I can't remember, I'd have to double check, but that ten grand
1: limit? The ten grand limit when I left for Singapore was still being debated. And as far as I'm aware, I don't I think it's still sitting there at the moment. So I don't know yeah, I know they
0: were talking about it. I couldn't remember whether they actually yeah. came in or not.
1: It did arouse a fair bit of, you know, to and fro. On the one hand, people saying it's a great way to remove illegal transactions. And on the other hand, some people pointing out a whole variety of ones, everything from freedom of choice, I should be free to pay if I do Yeah. Cash if I want to. The actual number of $10,000 transactions that are paid in cash is obviously very small as well. So Thinking
0: about that one, I... Honestly, don't know exactly where I fall on it. But I can definitely see the benefit in black economy, for example, not having heaps of cash and it, it would definitely help there. But at the same time, it is legal tender. And, you know, if I can prove that I've earned it from legal means, why can't I buy something with it? You know what I mean? So it was interesting. And when I was talking to people previously about it, it was a real... I suppose a divide and I don't want to sound like I'm really sitting on the fence, but to be honest I am, where people are like, nah, oh we'll get rid of it because black economy or nah, we don't want it in because freedom of choice and stuff. Yeah, it's it's an interesting move. Like you said, there's not that many transactions over ten grand that would really happen. And to be honest, most of the transactions I would think of, I mean I'm sure there's plenty that are but would be for assets that have to be registered with the government anyway. So buying a vehicle, you know, have to register with the Department of Transport. Buying a house has to go with like land gate or whatever. So I don't actually know exactly how I sit on that one.
1: <laughs> so I know that was quite it's a challenging, one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And yet, here's an interesting factoid for your audience: it's legitimate for a business to say, "I won't accept cash." That's well been the law. So even though cash is legal currency, is legal tender, of course, the Reserve Bank has been very clear, and I remember being asked this question a number of times in a number of accounting-based forums, surely if someone wants to pay with cash, you're duty bound to accept it. The answer is actually no, it's legal tender, but it doesn't mean that a business is obliged to yeah. accept it. business can sort of say, we because the question originally came up in a competition in a consumer angle, what happens if a business tells me that they'll only accept payment by, you know, either card or if it's a large one, EST? Mm. The answer is the business is within their rights to do it. Yeah. And
0: like with the current climate, with the COVID side of things, we have seen a lot more of that, you know, businesses saying we won't accept cash, which is interesting because I, I know I've seen it and stuff, <laughs> but it is up to the business. Like you said, it, it's not... Like they're obligated to take the cash, so yeah, that's actually really interesting. That's, that's good to know. It's
1: fair to say, COVID is changing upending a whole bunch of models.
0: It is, it is, it's changing all sorts of stuff
1: now. Everything from what you do when you're staying in a hotel for two weeks through to uh, <laughs> hey, you accept cash.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, with the Chamber of Commerce, what do you do with them,
1: right? Okay, so. I've been the CEO of the State Chamber of Commerce for the Australian Capital Territory, the Canberra Business Chamber, for about a year and a half. I head off to Singapore in that time someone else has been running the show. Chambers, of Commerce are really important, not only for individual businesses, but for communities as as a whole. Chambers exist to provide a service. They provide not only a voice to government on behalf of the business community, but also it's a great way in which business people can get together with others who are in exactly the same boat as them. So it doesn't matter whether you are a local business, a big business, or a medium-sized one. There are always issues that you've got in common and the only other people that really go to understand them is other business operators. I think the ultimate case is the small business operator because they are the ones that often don't have much in the way of Intercompany support because they are effectively the company themselves. Apart from their accountants, they don't really have a lot of other places they can turn to. Their accountants, their friends, family, what's the old saying, friends, fools and family, but yeah. generally asking your friends and family about how to run a business if they've got no experience doesn't move you into the full category anyway. Yeah. So there's a pretty important function in WA, of course, The peak one is CCIWA, Chamber of Commerce and Industry, but there are local ones. There's several throughout the Peel region, of course. Fremantle Chamber of Commerce, Rockingham and so forth. So running that chamber has been really important because it's a conduit, obviously, to local government. Sometimes the bread and butter issues, zoning and planning and even simple things like, can I put tables and chairs out here, for example, if I'm running a restaurant, are you changing the bylaws? on that right through to bigger picture issue ones at the moment of course state governments are tremendously important in movement of goods and services and people between zones as we react to COVID Mm -hmm. and of course the national one as well in terms of the the framework, most of those tax competition, Mm -hmm. employment rules, most of those sit with the federal government. So there's a bit of unity and strength is there, is really needed as well. So Chambers play a really important role that sometimes many people in the business sector kind of think, well, I don't really need it. And the problem is, you, you probably will need it at some stage, and if you're not a member, it's going to be a little bit too late. A classic one that most business operators will come into, and one which your accountant cannot really help you with, of course, is employment related matters. For example, if you have an unfair dismissal matter, if you have an issue where you either need to terminate someone or you need to caution them, or you need to actually think about am I employing the person on the right conditions, am I paying them the right amount of money? That's where something like a membership of a chamber can be tremendously powerful as well because that small subscription fee will often give you all the coverage of that as well. So that's a real immediate one. I mean, I would sort of say to business people that there is that bigger picture about, you know, chipping in to be part of the bigger business community about building your networks, especially in regional towns. I mean, you know, for example, Mandra really a country town, but not part of the city. It's got its own distinct entity. But in part of that region, building networks, often getting referrals and work from each other, that's how that comes about. So they play a, they play a really important role there. The Canberra Chamber is a little bit different to most of the others because it's the only state or territory where there is literally only one chamber. If you're in WA, you can join Rockingham, you can join Fremantle, and then you could also, if you wanted to, join CCIWA. But in ACT, there is only one chamber for the entire state because the ACT is only really Canberra. There isn't, no, interesting enough, there is truly nothing else there. There are no other towns in that whole state or territory. So we're a slightly bit, a little bit different there. But most of these chambers have been around for close to a century. They go to the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce, for example. They've been around since about the 1860s. Mm-hmm. So it's a very long period of time as well, which goes to show they've got something to to contribute there. Now, that also is trade issues, and one of the things that I was looking up and I think we wanted to touch on, Mitch, was the issue about doing business for example, between Australia and doing it in Asia as well. Yeah. Just a final comment about chambers in general, so I think there is a value in being part of it, as self-interest as well as the bigger business community interest, but there's also some practical ones, not just that HR issue, but classic one would be if you want to trade, how do I go about doing it? For example, if you want to break into a market, how do I do it?
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, I 100 percent agree. Like we're members of the Mandra Chamber of Commerce or Peel Chamber yep. of Commerce. I think technically it's called. Yes, we're members there. We go to the events. Like you said, there's both the self-interest side of obviously networking, getting to know people, getting more business, etc. But also the giving back. We are all in this together. Mandra is kind of a weird hybrid of it runs like a small country town, but is eighty odd thousand people. So it's very who you know, who knows who, friends, word of mouth is a massive thing here. But yeah, it's like eighty thousand people. So it's it's a weird hybrid. I think it's great the chamber. Like even when like the COVID stuff came out and the different incentives. We spoke to the chamber, uh, the sales. We get on quite well with the general manager that's there at the moment and wrote up some, I suppose, just real easy, this is roughly how JobKeeper works, go talk to your accountant. And they then published it to uh, all their members. So their members get the, semi, or it's not advice, but the information so that they can go, you know what, I, I think we might be eligible or not or whatever. So they can go talk to their accountants. So gives us the giving back and helping. And then also, obviously, we put our logo and stuff on for if they're interested and they want to come to us. So I think that's really good, like giving back. And obviously, we get clients as well. But And going to these events, and like you said, lots of small businesses, you get very isolated, especially when you start. If you're pretty much the business, like when I first started my accounting firm and it was me, I had nobody, like I was literally the only employee, only person in the business. It does get very isolated and you can't so much like, you know, bounce ideas off or or is this normal, is this not, like, you know, that sort of stuff. And I, I think it's really good to have a network of it, even if they're not in the same industry because like, you know, say an accounting firm might be having trouble with clients paying, a plumber might have the exact same problem happening. and the Solution could be something that both can utilise and maybe then we'll change the terms or whatever. So there's going to be people in there that have got the same problems you do and it's it's good to work together because, like I've said on prior stuff, we don't know everything. So if we can, as a collective, work it out, that's going to be a massive benefit and not only to me because if, say, the debtor thing like we said, if we can figure it out, yeah, that's going to reduce my debtors but that's always also going to reduce the, the plumber's debtors because I worked it out with him and everybody else in sort of the industry, that like <laughs> we were um, in the network, I suppose. So, yeah, it helps me, but it helps everybody else. So I think that's a really important thing with the chamber side as
1: well. And it can be all the nuts and bolts. You know, a classic one, again, I've been back to the accounting context, is if you're in business life, what's well, a good accounting software package? You can read all the advertising from Dozens, well, there, I mean, there are two or three big players, but there's lots of other pack Well, I don't know which one. Sometimes you talk to people, you know, and chamber events are those perfect forms because how else are you going to meet people?
0: Yeah, yeah, and they yeah. all are going that's to have a software. If they've got a business, yeah. pretty much they're going to have a software. So, exactly,
1: yeah. 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 Well, this one works for me, or that didn't work for me, or it's good, but we'll be careful about this. And that's sort of nuts and bolts. And the other one about breaking into Communities too. I mean, Canberra, for example, is bigger than Mandurah. It's about four hundred thousand people. Mm-hmm. But it's—I think most parts of the world really are big country towns. Yeah, people even believe and say that. Uh, you know, often the North Shore and, and the South Shore, the the Shire, the North Shore, the Western City—they're all their own little communities. And we have people come in and they go, "I want to do business, and I, I need you to—I need you to find fifty people for me." And it's kind of like it doesn't work like that. It's about relationships. Yeah. It's all about transactions, and there are some things that are purely transactional, but most business, you do business with people you trust, people you know, yep. people you feel comfortable with, and so you have to do that. And as you just said, also that hallelujah moment where you go sit there and you go, I am not the only one having this problem. It is not me. Running a business is hard work. You are the jack or of all trades. You are... Everything from You've got to be on top of the particular technical aspect of whatever the industry is, whether it be accounting, whether it be a plumbing service, whether it be a motor mechanic, but then you've also got to be head of HR, you've got to be head of marketing, you've got to be the person who does the bookkeeping, you've got to be the person that deals with the local council. You've got all of those things as well. And today, for example, that three-quarters of all social media campaigns done by small businesses. Guess what? They're written by the owner. Yes, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he's got the time to do it. So all of those things add up tremendously
0: as well. So yeah, yeah. I always used of like running a business is half the time putting out fires before they get too big, and then half the time trying to move ahead because stuff goes wrong all the time. Like yeah. whether it's HR issues, advertising issues, client issues, whatever. There's always something. So trying to make sure that fire is sorted everybody's happy and all that whilst moving forward. It's a really delicate balance of the two. And when you have every hat on, like you said, you're the bookkeeper, you're the HR one, you're the specialist, you're, you're everything, it can get quite overwhelming having all those things happen. So, yeah, no, that's really interesting. Now, because we're almost out of time, but let's jump on to the <laughs> Southeast Asia and trade <laughs>
1: It is a great market. It is right to the front of our doorstep. Western Australia is especially close in terms of time zones. It's four, five hours at most. Some of them are very rich countries. Singapore has an average income the same as or slightly higher than Australia's. Some of them are huge markets. Indonesia is almost 300 million people. Say that slowly, 300 million. It's almost as big as Western Europe. It is accelerating quickly up. The income scale. It will be our biggest trading partner one day. Forget China. Forget India. It will be countries like that. But there are things you need to be aware of. Southeast Asia is still separate cultural communities, and there are multiple different ones doing them. There are nuances. You need to spend time. You need to build, as we've just talked about relationships. Again, you need to build relationships. Very much about it. Different countries have very different needs. For example. As I just mentioned before, Singapore is very high tech, very advanced, wealthy, first world country. Nations like Malaysia, slightly ever so slightly bigger than Australia, but um, middle income countries, and then countries with less income like Indonesia, but moving quickly up the scale. But Indonesia, for example, sixteen thousand islands, as much as anyone can count them, and wow. three distinct ethnic groups, they don't all just speak Bahasa; they speak. Sometimes it's like going to Europe, you know, they all speak their own language. Most, most of them might speak smattering of English, but they speak their own language. You've got to think about that as well. I think it is an area in which our future does lie and even whether it be professional services, accounting, whether it be nuts and bolts things. I've been drinking Australian milk, buying Australian fruit and vegetables. That's all part of what's up there and something we've we really got to secure for ourselves as well. But you do need to think about some of the nuances. I'm not sure how we're going for time in terms of, you know, right,
0: we, we can keep going. I just wanted to make sure we got onto it. it. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And there are a couple of things you need to think about. One of the biggest mistakes is to assume that it's a homogeneous area. I use the example of Europe because most of us can recognise that how people in Poland live and work and speak and what they eat and what they do is going to be a bit different to what people in Spain do. Yes. Yeah. Language. You put it that way and you kind of have to put it in context. So, for example, it's like Thailand. Thailand's got a reasonable actual manufacturing industry. Mm-hmm. Indonesia doesn't. Malaysia's got a good manufacturing industry. Philippines doesn't. But the Philippines has got almost everyone speaks English as a result of you know, 50 years as an American colony. Almost everyone's got a college education, at least there. So, there's some huge differences. Then you've got countries like Vietnam. Vietnam's a tremendously entrepreneurial country, very keen to do business with Australia. The war is a long forgotten thing there and it's not something that ever gets in the way there. But like Australia, they also geopolitically have the same sort of concerns we do about some of the other countries in the region and actually a fair degree of uh, common interests and security in matters like that as well. There are different and things you don't realise, uh, someone pointed out to me that you know, it's always better to use a Gmail account rather than an official account in many parts of Asia, because in some of those countries with high levels of corruption, you tend to find that if you say you, anything to do with government or anything that looks too official, people will run 100 miles from is for, yeah. for, Isn't that interesting?
0: Like Compared to, say, yeah. Australia, where if I got an email, say, from yourself looking really official, that, I'd go, oh yeah, cool, this is trustworthy. And then, if I just say got one out of the blue from a Gmail saying there, are you, yeah, are you, I would be like, is it like you know? That's yeah. Interesting.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's a real difference. There are a bit of rivalries too. I mean, you know, it's not just language differences. But uh, Singapore is predominantly Chinese, and Malaysia—it's next door neighbour. Those two have a very interesting relationship. It's much more fractious than Australia and. New Zealand, Australia, New Zealand are not. They're just two countries that have, could have been one and ended up being two. Wow. But You know, Singapore's the country that left Malaysia and when it was formed then, Malaysia was mainly ethnic Malays. Someone sort of said to me, Singapore, of course, is mainly ethnic Chinese. Someone said to me that, you know, sometimes Singapore can look to other parts of Asia and look at Singapore as being, um, you know, the bright young kid in the room who does everything well, but they keep... We don't need to keep getting told that, you know. We uh, yeah. So there's a rivalry there sometimes between them as well. So there are some of those tensions as well. I would encourage people to think about picking one or two countries in there. Malaysia is a country, for example, with a reasonably high level of English spoken in it, but it's not as expensive as doing business as Singapore. Singapore is great if you've got advanced skills, services, technology, really yeah. good market. But it's not cheap. Just like moving to Australia isn't cheap, moving to do business in Singapore isn't cheap. On the converse, if you want to go to Laos or Cambodia or Myanmar, much higher degrees of corruption, you have to be really careful about who you place your trust in and the legal systems works in a fundamentally different way to how it does here. Yep, yep. And
0: even, like you said, with the Philippines, it's really interesting talking to other professional firms and other professionals that have foreign offices, most are in the Philippines because of their their English level, they're very well educated and they've also got, from a cultural point of view, the work ethic that's there as well. So most, in my experience, talking to others, have them over in the Philippines.
1: Yeah, I remember also, for example, one of the former Australian High Commissioners to Singapore sort of saying that you'd also find very different familiarity with Australia. So, for example, Malaysia and Singapore are both former British colonies, mm. just like was. So, common law system, a parliamentary system. Malaysia is actually technically also a federation, like Australia is, although dynamics are a little bit different, but it's basically got states. It's got 16 states and territories and a federal yeah. parliament. But Singapore's also got quite a lot of links, not only even just in WA. A lot of Singaporeans, for example over the years, being to universities in in Perth. And up until recently, the biggest Malaysian population in Australia was in Perth. It's now apparently Melbourne. But the current Singaporean High Commissioner to Australia did his degree at Murdoch Uni. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Australia, Singapore, New Zealand, the United States, Great Britain have defence and intelligence sharing capacities as well and arrangements that we don't have with other countries as well. There are some options there. You've got to be prepared to invest a bit of time. Fortunately, if you're coming from WA, that's not as big an ask because it's a four-hour trip. It's almost as much time as it takes to get to Sydney.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, even literally from Perth to Bali, for example, in Indonesia, mm. is closer than Perth to Sydney. It's a three-and-a-half-hour yeah. three flight. So it's crazy how, how it all works. So, but, um, yeah, I do think Indonesia... Like you said, they've got a massive population. They're growing, their infrastructure and everything is getting there. And they're going to be a huge trading partner in the future. So that that'll be really interesting. And especially as other countries which, you know, especially manufacturing are starting to get a little bit more expensive because they have gone up into that sort of middle class level. And companies are looking for cheaper alternatives. So they're looking at different countries you know i know uh, a few companies look at manufacturing in vietnam because it is cheaper than say certain parts of china it's really interesting to see how it all works and even not to we'll get right into it but how different religions and ethnic groups affect over there which don't so much here like i think we were saying the other day that was it malaysia with the chambers and they split it up via uh, race which is almost just a unbelievably foreign thought for Australia, like having a white chamber of commerce and an Indian, and a, that's quite foreign to us. But over there, you know, that,
1: that's quite normal. So it does reinforce the need, Mitch, to spend a bit of time not only thinking about the business opportunities but also understanding the culture. Yeah, yeah. And just because you want to do business with people doesn't mean that and they will do it come hell or high water if you're across all the cultural toes. You don't need to spend all your time wrapped up in it, but a few things will go a long way. Just as we were talking before about, you know, the Scandinavians love using cashless transactions, whereas the Americans seem to be deeply wedded to their, to their greenbacks. We've got to make sure that we understand some of those nuances as well. Like you just yeah. said, religion, ethnicity, status, because they're often much more status-conscious countries, regional Variations. But that's all sort kind of a really interesting stuff to do. And if you think, and just before anyone says, well, Australia is just one market, it is. But I'll tell you what, you know, there are still differences between, you know, New South Wales and Victorians and, you know, Queenslanders and Western Australians.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And even on a smaller scale, obviously not as much as through Asia, but there's certain areas in Western Australia where there's a lot of Italians and they'll really only deal with Italians or like a very high Indian population and they'll mostly just deal with other Indians. Now, like that's not to say if you had something they wanted and they wouldn't do it, like work with you. They probably would, but they, will, you know, tend to stay sort of amongst themselves in certain areas. I mean, that's obviously very generalised, but yeah. And then even, like you said, with over east compared to here, one thing which is... Like, it's not a big difference, but, you know, the Sydney people talk a lot faster than us Western Australians. <laughs> so I get told I have to talk faster when I talk to them sometimes. It's interesting, and we are so far apart. Like, yeah, four, four-and-a-half-hour flight from Perth to Sydney. Even though we are one country, it's a long way. So they've got different slang sometimes, different I don't want to say different sort of English, but you know, there's different things over there that will make sense to you know you guys over in Canberra or Sydney or whatever that here, We're like, what? But you know, just and vice versa. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. As a Western
1: Australian over East, of course, you know, I always get bemused. And I guess we probably have to wrap it up in a sec, but um, that we've I talk to people about and I using the phrase Eastern and status. Yeah. yeah. Kind of like, people, kind of quite. What is this concept of an eastern stater, You know, but you know, if you come from WA, it's like the eastern states.
0: Yeah, know? exactly. That's just their norm. That's they're over here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> if you're from Tasmania, it's just called the North Island. The rest.
0: Yeah. Of <laughs> oh, I'm not going to touch the Tasmanian jokes on that one. <laughs> okay, I'll just finish off with a couple of questions. A Couple of real quick fire questions for you. So if you had one piece of advice that you could give your younger self, what would it be? Be clear in what you want to do and go for it straight away. Beautiful, beautiful. What do you think is the most important quality in business?
1: I think it's a degree of humility. You don't know it all. You can learn from others and humility also implies a degree of respect for others and giving people respect means that there might be one or two people that might walk over you but the vast bulk of business people good people and they will reciprocate
0: that. Yep. Yep. No, I agree. Okay. So if you had one superpower, what would it be?
1: Sometimes I think I'd be like to read people's minds. I'm not really sure about that. Sometimes I might know if I <laughs> want the <act. laughs>
0: That'd be the one I'd go for at the moment. Yep. Nice, nice. What's your favourite footy team? Oh, that's easy. The Dockers. Yeah, that's it's good. That, that's the right answer. Yeah. <laughs> it's a
1: potential cardiac. But those of us who, uh, who live in hope, even after 25 years of, you know, them, them playing around, I carry my doctor's mug religiously around from office to office, you know, one day. One day, one day we'll get the cup.
0: <laughs> okay, last one. What's your favourite book of all time?
1: It's probably The Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah? Yeah? No? Nice. I read that when I was about 13 or 14, um, well before the movie had come out and the use of the language, the construction of an alternate universe, but also some of the, the great moral themes of justice, of small people trying to right wrongs, all those things really resonate with me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's an awesome book and, I mean, it just shows how strong the message it is that it was written decades and decades ago before either of us were probably around. And it's still you know, resonates today and it, it's great. It's great books. So now actually one last real quick question for the viewers because I forgot to ask at the start. What's your doctorate in?
1: Ah, it's from Curtin Unions in Small Business Management.
0: Ah, beautiful, beautiful.
1: Oh, yeah,
0: yeah about, I, um, yep. Yep, I was going to oh, say no, I, so I, I introduced it. you as Dr. Michael Shaper and then forgot to clarify <laughs> what your doctorate's in. <laughs> I
1: didn't. <laughs> After running the BEC in the small business centre in the Peel region, I eventually ended up at Curtin running the small business program for a couple of years there, and that's when I did it. And at the time, I was told, oh, small business, what is this stuff? No, no, don't do that. No, No, I want to do this because I'm passionate about it. I believe in it very much, and I don't regret that ever since.
0: Yep, beautiful, and we're all very thankful for it. (laughs) So, <laughs> cool well thanks very much it's been a great podcast and i hope to talk again soon thank you for all the listeners and um stay tuned for future podcasts you've been listening to the mitch maroney show mitch maroney show stay tuned for more